With that, we're going to dive into the sermon today. Uh, if you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 19, we are in week 20 of a series called Humankind. We're bringing it in for a landing. We've been looking at the specific interactions of Jesus with people. That's what this series has really been about. Uh, we've been looking at the things that Jesus did, the things that Jesus said, because I believe those interactions, what we see Jesus doing, what we see Jesus, what we hear him saying to people as he interacts with them, I believe that tells us more about what we believe and more about how we behave in the world than just about any other thing. We look to Jesus and he sort of points us in the right direction. So we're, we're diving into another story today. And this particular story um, just kind of reminded me of my childhood in a, in a strange way. Uh, I grew up with, older, with two older brothers. Anybody grew up with older brothers? Raise your hand up. You, so, some of you got tortured by older brothers. More on that later. Um, my brothers are six years older than me. And so um, what that means is that about the time they hit adolescence, or about the time they started making really stupid decisions, I was old enough to start taking notes. Right? Like I, I saw them, like I had a front row seat for all sorts of missteps and mess ups, crashed cars and holes in drywall and all sorts of things that they got punished for. I got to be a part of that ride. And, uh, and naturally, I, I also grew up as a pleaser. Like I don't, I don't really love making people angry. I know some people in the world seem to, but uh, I like to make people happy. I don't like it when people are unhappy with me. And so when I saw my brothers getting busted, and I heard the backroom conversations with my parents as they debated how to punish them this time, I, I realized then there are two ways to learn lessons in life, right? You can learn from your mistakes or you can learn from the mistakes of your older brothers. And I just was like, I don't want to follow in your footsteps. My parents will tell you I was the perfect child. And it was only because I watched my brothers. That's what, I don't know that my parents will say I was a perfect child, but in my mind, I was. But you say, well, what does this have to do with Matthew chapter 19? Well, the text we're looking at today is a little bit unique from what we've seen throughout this series. Um, because most of the time, when we've, when we've encountered Jesus, we've encountered his, his softer side. We, we see, um, we see his, his gentleness, right? Or um, we come in contact with his, his compassion, and we see that compassion that rises up inside of him. Um, we've witnessed his grace, his forgiveness. Those are the things we've encountered. But in today's text, we bump up against his more confrontational side. And what's unique about this, Jesus is confrontational, right? When you read the New Testament, you see him being confrontational, but it's almost always with the religious leaders. At least that's the, the stories we point out, right? We point out the times when Jesus was confronting the religious, the legalists. We, we see Jesus doing that. But in this story today, Jesus is confrontational with his disciples, with his disciples, which means this has particular relevance to those of us in the room that would call ourselves disciples of Jesus. So we have a choice as disciples. We can either learn from our own mistakes or we can observe the mistakes of these disciples and try not to make them. I think I know where I want to land on this one, right? And maybe you do too. I would much rather learn from their mistakes. But, but here's, here's what I want to make really clear. This is not relevant because um, Jesus is confronting their behavior, our motivation in looking at this is not the same as me observing my brothers, like we're trying to stay out of trouble with Jesus, like we better not do what the disciples did because we don't want to be on Jesus' bad side. That's not the motivation here. The motivation has to do with our experience of the depths of the life that Jesus is offering us. Jesus doesn't correct the disciples because they're behaving badly. They are behaving badly, but that's not the point. 
he corrects them because in their misunderstanding, they are missing out on the fundamental principle for experiencing or encountering the kind of life that Jesus came to give us. So he sees them and he says, I have to deal with this because if we don't address this, if you don't get this, you're never gonna enter into everything that I've come to offer you. So I wanna dive into this. Um, and and as, as we do, I'll just set the stage a little bit that Jesus has been teaching up in the region of Galilee, that's in the north, and now he's traveled with his disciples. In Matthew chapter 19, he travels down to Judea and he starts teaching there like he normally does. He goes out into public and the crowds gather and people wanna hear from him and they listen to him and people press in. It's a typical day in the life of Jesus. And so when we pick up this story, Jesus is out teaching. He's been talking. And then we read this in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 19. It says, then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. I'm going to pause here. Just a quick time out. Because um, this is really comical when you think about this. There are people who have children right? Just children. And they're bringing them to Jesus. And all they want is for Jesus to just put his hand on their head and pray for them, right? So they got little kids. They just want Jesus to bless their children. That's what they want. That's all that they're doing. And the disciples, the disciples of Jesus, Matthew says, rebuked them. It, it doesn't say that they gently moved them along like, hey, hey, you know, guys, Jesus is really busy right now. Like maybe you can make an appointment for next week or maybe when things calm down, he can do this. They don't like gently move them along. It says they rebuked them. Like get out of here. Ain't nobody got time for that. That kind of rebuke. Like who do you think Jesus is? You think Jesus really wants to bless the little children right now? Like they're confronting them. And notice it wasn't just one, like one misguided disciple. I'd feel way better if it was Judas who did this, Right? Because we all hate Judas, right? So like Judas probably hated kids too, right? Like that's Judas. But it's his disciples, plural. It's the disciples. So Jesus, I, I don't know if he's in the middle of teaching when he sees this, but Jesus observes this, right? He sees it. And in fact, Mark's account, Mark chapter 10, it says that Jesus became indignant, Jesus became indignant. He's incensed. For those of you that don't know what those words mean, Jesus is ticked. That's what it means, right? Which in my house growing up meant that you got the wood spoon, right? Anyone else know the wooden spoon, right? That's what Jesus in this moment, he's like, are you kidding me? He's frustrated. And then he says this, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And listen to what he says here. This is so critical. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. He went on from there. Basically, this is a mic drop moment for Jesus. That's what this is, right? He went on from there. Basically, he did everything the disciples didn't want him to do. And then I just think Jesus was like, I got to get some air, right? So he, he does this and then he walks. He just moves along. But before he moves along, he did something. He said something that I believe rang true in the disciples' ears. It reminded them of something. He said, don't stop them because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to ones like this. So you ask, well, why was Jesus so indignant? 
And why would this have rung in the disciples' ears? Let me just tell you. Remember I said that earlier Jesus had been up in Galilee teaching. He traveled down to Judea. Well, in Matthew 18, he's in Galilee. Matthew 19, he's in Judea. In Matthew 18, there's a conversation that's taking place up in Galilee among the disciples. They're, they're all hanging out, and there was this discussion, and the irony of, of this moment is too significant to be missed. In fact, let me just say this. If you ever feel thick-headed as a Jesus follower, you're like, I'm just not very good at this whole thing. The disciples will make you feel better right about now about yourself, okay? So up in Galilee, right before this moment that we're reading about today, the disciples are standing around and they're, they're, they decide to ask Jesus a question. So they've been having a conversation that's like, hey, Jesus, maybe you could speak to this, right? Look at this with me. Matthew chapter 18, verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I don't want to attempt to read into this too much, and I don't want to try to read into the motive, but I feel like the fact that they even asked this question was a revelation of their lack of understanding about the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me on this? Who's the greatest? The kingdom of heaven is not like other kingdoms. And they are asking a question that is squarely rooted in the construct of other kingdoms. That's an other kingdom kind of question. Who is the greatest? Or who's the honored one? Or who, who's the one that's really made it? Who's at the top of the ladder? And in any other kingdom, the answer would have been like, well, the one with the money, or the one with the power, or the one with the looks, or the one with three weeks vacation and a nice little home in the Hamptons, something like that. That's what would, that would have been the answer, right? Jesus, in this kingdom that you have been telling us about, would you let us know who is the greatest? And so Jesus answers him, and he does it in such a Jesus way. I love this. Check this out. Verse two, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Isn't this beautiful? They ask the question and Jesus sees a kid, you know, and he's like, hey, come here, come here, come here, come here. Calls the kid over, right? Gets him in the middle. He goes, you guys want to know what greatness looks like? You guys want to know? Right here. Behold greatness in my kingdom. Do, do you realize how upside down and backwards this would have been for the disciples? They're thinking about positions of honor. They're thinking about worldly greatness. And Jesus goes, no, this is greatness. This is it. And there isn't one characteristic of a child, especially during that day and age, that aligned with greatness in any other kingdom. But in Jesus' kingdom... He says, this is what greatness looks like. Which now do you understand why a few days later, when Jesus catches the disciples, like kicking the parents out with their kids, like get out of here, get these kids out of here. Now do you understand why Jesus was indignant? He literally just got done telling them that these are the ones that inherit the kingdom of heaven. And a few days later, they're shooing kids away from his feet. My, my brother I used to hold me down. He used to put his, his knees on my shoulder. He would hold me down and he would pound his knuckle on my chest and he would thump me and he would keep thumping faster and harder and he would say, 10 candy bars. 
which meant I had to name 10 candy bars while he was thumping my chest for him to stop. He would just start pounding, pounding, pounding. And sometimes I wonder like if Jesus ever wanted to do that with his disciples in these moments, right? Like get over here, you know, name 10 Old Testament prophets. I don't know. I just start pounding on their chest, right? Like you guys just don't get it. You don't get it. But before we get too far laughing at them, I think we have to stop and say this. Do we get it? Do we get what Jesus is saying here? Like when you and I imagine stepping through the doorway into the kingdom of heaven, which by the way, we have talked at length, when Jesus says, talks about the kingdom of heaven, he says it's something that's available now. It's a way of living in the present. It's a, it's a thing that we enter into in this moment, not just something that's off in the future. And so when we consider entering into it or experiencing it in this life, when you imagine yourself like really living in the kingdom, do you imagine yourself more or less like a child? Like when you think about what that looks like in your, in your spiritual imagination, you go, Who, what kind of person is Jesus forming me into? When you dream about what he's doing in your life, do you dream of somebody who's more or less childlike? Jesus says, if you really want to experience the kingdom, then you become like this kid right here. You become childlike. What he's telling us is that there are essential qualities to how children approach him that, that embody everything that Jesus says his kingdom is about. The kingdom belongs to such as these, these kids. My kids are getting older. Um, but right now, I've got a lot of friends that, uh, that have little kids. I, I just like, you know, just, I've got friends with young kids right now. And... Uh, the other night I was sitting in the home of, of some friends and they got two boys, five and three, and uh, we sent them out back to play so that adults could have adult conversations. Everyone in the room's probably done that or it's been done to you, right? Hey, why don't you guys go out back, you know, so we can have like five minutes of uninterrupted conversation, right? Well, they go out back and they're playing and within a few minutes we just hear, mom, 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 like they're just yelling and they're, and they're like scrambling through the door. We're like, okay, either somebody's dead or they found something amazing, whatever it is. And they're yelling, look what we found, look what we found. And the anticipation's building as we hear them kind of running towards the room that we're sitting in and they come around the corner. They're so excited. By the time they get there, I'm excited. I'm like, what is it? What's it gonna be? Like, did you guys find treasure? Like, what did you find, you know? And so they come around, they, look what we found. And, and, and the one son pulls out and he's holding in his hand an orange, Sharpie. We found this in the backyard. Like, this is amazing. And I have seen a Sharpie a time or two in my life, but I celebrated with them. I was like, oh, that's awesome. This is great. Now go find some more treasures, right? Go back out to the backyard, right? Go do this. And with the same enthusiasm that they, that they entered, they ran back out looking for more treasures. And it was just the most amazing thing. Um, later on, when they came back in, I, I said, did you guys find anything else? What'd you find? And they said, no more treasures, but we did find some trash and we picked it up because we're gonna make the world a better place. Right? There's this like primal sense of wonder and awe in the face of a child. Kids, they, they live with this, this anticipation that whatever is around the corner, like whatever is coming up next, it's gonna be good, right? They just believe that. It's like, oh no, whatever's next, I think it's gonna be good. When Jesus describes people who are experiencing his kingdom, he says, it's like that. You look like that. That's how you live. So, so I want you to look at a few words with me that I think were probably in Jesus' heart when he said this, words that describe children, words like this, words like wonder, 
wonder. There is just this wonder and awe that kids move through their days with or, or joy. How, have you just noticed like kids, they just exude joy. Even in the middle of crazy circumstances, kids, they just have joy. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world. There's just joy, right? Or trust. Kids just trust. Isn't it unreal how much they just trust? Like, oh, just trust this person. Why? Well, because I think we're supposed to trust, right? Trust. Or vulnerability. You ever notice that kids don't try to hide their scrapes and bruises and bumps? They just tell you, I'm hurt. Do something. Help me, right? There's this vulnerability to kids, right? Or, or hope. Hope, this idea that they, like, they believe something about the future that's so powerful that it allows them to live a particular way in the moment that's in front of them, right? That's, that's hope. Children have this thing called hope. They love. This, the two boys that I was with the, the other day, the younger one, lately his thing is just telling everybody that he loves them. Like, oh, I love you. I love this chair. I love this table. He's just like, right now he loves love. He's just loving everything, right? And that's just kids. They just love, right? Oh, I love it. They're so enthusiastic. Or what about dependency? Kids are just dependent, right? They, there's, a, there's an open dependency. Like, I, like, I can't get through this without you, mom. I can't get this through this without you, dad, right? They just are dependent. I have a feeling that these are the things that Jesus was getting at. And yet at the same time, life has a way of beating the wonder and the joy and the vulnerability out of us, doesn't it? It just does. You get betrayed by somebody or, 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 or you pour your life into something and then it just crumbles in front of you. Or you work and work to earn something or to get something and it just gets taken from you. Or you lose people that are close to you that you never imagined you'd have to live life without. Life happens. And when life happens, there's like this hard, thin shell that then starts to layer over you with every one of those circumstances. But you just soldier on, right? You just keep pressing on. But then something else happens and something else happens and something else happens. And now the hope and now the love and now even the dependency, they all just keep getting covered up with one more hard layer that we layer on with all of life's circumstances. Can we just admit that nobody ever decides to be a cynic. Kids don't come out of the womb cynical. They don't come out of the womb, like nobody chooses to be jaded. It just happens to you. Life happens to you. And so what do you do? You pull away and you, you fold your arms, you roll your eyes more, you, 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 you don't give the benefit of the doubt, you assume the worst rather than believing the best. Sound familiar? And I don't believe that's how God intended us to live. Like, I don't think God said, you know, I want to create humanity and I want you to move around this planet cynical and jaded and hard and joyless and hopeless and loveless. I don't believe that's how he wanted us to live. I think God has more for us. I, I've had some small realizations around this. A few years ago, I was eating. I like food a lot. Anyone else like food a lot? Anyone else like me like food maybe a little too much? Um, but I was eating and this, this idea dawned on me that I have taste buds. God gave me taste buds so that when there are certain combinations of food, I experience forms of pleasure. Have you ever think about this? Like God designed you so that when you put certain things in your mouth and you eat them, it's like, ooh, that's good. And like there's pleasurable, like that's a really crazy thing. And I was like, 
God, you might actually want us to enjoy life. If you gave me taste buds, what else is there? And I know the cynic will say, no, those taste buds are keeping you from eating something poisonous, right? That's what the cynic says. But I think God actually wants us to enjoy life, right? You go to help somebody up. Somebody's climbing a rock or something, and you lend them a hand. There's a very practical part about lending somebody a hand. But when you slip your hand into the hand of another, when I grab my wife's hand, why is it that both of us feel more than just the nerves on the surface of our skin touching? Why is it that when we hold hands, there's something warm, something different, something that takes place inside of us? Why is it that God created us this way? See, I think Jesus is inviting us to experience this reality of wonder and the beautiful things that God has done with us in this world. These are just small examples that point to the reality that that trust and joy and vulnerability and wonder and awe and hope and love and even dependency, they're intended to be a part of the human experience. But I want to make a distinction. There's a distinction between being childlike and childish. Are you with me on this? We have to distinguish. What is childish? Well, think about the last time you saw an adult and thought they're being childish. (laughs) That's childish, right? What were they doing? Well, they were probably being stubborn, right? They were being stubborn about something or they were refusing to do something new or they were resisting change of some kind. They wouldn't wouldn't lean into this. Um, Childish is stomping your feet when you don't get your way. That's childish, right? Childish is this. Childish is believing that, that, that you have all the answers and that all these other people are just crazy. Like, no, I know what's going on in the world and nobody can budge me from this thing right here. That's childish. A, a funny example of this. Um, when our kids were little, we, uh, we saved up and took them to Disneyland. And when we did, um, Morgan, who was leading worship this morning, she was six. And uh, our middle daughter was four and our youngest daughter was two. And, uh, and shortly after entering into the park, I started convincing Morgan to go on Mr. Toad's wild ride with me. And this took some coaxing because Morgan really, really likes being in control. And, uh, and so like when she was little, we'd go skiing and she would rather bomb down a double black diamond backwards than ride the chairlift because she was in control when she was skiing, but somebody else was in control of the chairlift. And so that's just how she worked. And so we're standing in line and she's nervous and saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Mr. Toad's wild ride. That's, this is how scared she is. And I'm just like, okay, finally I realize there's a steering wheel in the buggy. I go, Morgan, you get to drive. You're the one that'll be driving. And she kind of looked and she goes, wait, I'm driving? And I go, yeah, you'll drive. And she goes, well, okay, like those terms are agreeable. If I'm in control, then I'll do the ride, right? Never mind the track that the car's on. She didn't see that. So now I had never ridden Mr. Toad's wild ride before. I had, I, so I didn't know what to expect. Um, if you're curious, you can look this up on Disneyland's website. It says this. This was what we were about to encounter. Enter the lavish English manor house known as Toad Hall and hop into a two-person open-air buggy. Skid past teetering stacks of books in the library and barrel through a fireplace before hurtling into a formal dining room. Careen through a wall-sized window and race past a riverbank, narrowly missing a flock of sheep. While avoiding a platoon of policemen, crash through scaffolding, splatter a stack of pies, smash crates, and ignite a fiery explosion. But look out for that train. Will you escape trial for your trial of destruction? Or is this is something more devilish in store? That's the description of a children's ride at Disneyland, right? So like the moment we go 
skidding past teetering stacks of books, the thing's over, like it's on. Like I look over at her and she is white knuckling the steering wheel. She's not even screaming. She's just like grunting, making noises. She's like, oh, like working and she's just panicking, like looking at me like, why did you let me drive? Why am I the one driving? You should be driving, you know, this whole thing. So she's got the death grip and I'm I'm like, Morgan, it's not real. You're not really driving. And she's like, yes, I am. And she's screaming at me. And then as luck would have it, there's a part of the ride where it goes to hell. Like who designs these rides? And the ride breaks down in hell. I'm not exaggerating at all. And I'm trying to convince her, Morgan, it's not real. It's not real. But she is just all about what's around her in this moment. Um, Needless to say, we're still working through some of our trust issues. Um, (laughs) Getting her on the teacups later that day was quite the chore, right? Trust me, they're just teacups. But what was she being? She was being childish, right? Reality was being defined by her in this moment and what she perceived to be real And she allowed her limited understanding and experience to define it, to define the moment. That's childish. Childlike is radically different, right? Childlike is the way in which you are open to wonder and awe with what's around us every day. Childlike is the way that you you discover and find joy in the small things, like like an orange Sharpie, right? Childlike is is choosing to trust and believing the best. Childlike is being vulnerable about about how you feel and where you are. It's being transparent. It's being open. Childlike is believing something about the future that's so powerful that it actually pulls you through the present. Childlike is, is, is loving unconditionally and uncategorically. Have you noticed that about kids? They just don't have categories. They just love everybody, right? Childlike is realizing that you're not, you're not on an island, that you're dependent. Like, it's being dependent on your heavenly father. It's actually knowing, I actually need you. That's childlike. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's calling each of us to return to this childlike space. He, he, he reaches through all of these layers of hardness and cynicism and independence, and he calls us to leave behind all the reasons that we've grown jaded and bitter He wants us to uncross our arms and he invites us out out of the stands and onto the court. He wants us to live life, to experience the color and the wonder and the beauty. See, well, okay, so great. I understand his motivation, but how how do we actually do that? How does that happen? How can we recapture a childlike sense that God wants us with him or that the world's an okay place to live or that there's a hope and a future for us? How, how do we live with that sort of wonder and that freedom and that lightness like a child? Here's what I've learned as a dad. Here's, how do you do this? Well, step one, don't coerce your kids onto roller coasters. That's step one, right? Kind of kidding about that. Um, but here's what I've learned as a dad. Kids get to be childlike when they are in an environment of unconditional love. Have you noticed this? Kids get to be childlike when they have a sense of attachment to the one that they're dependent on, right? I'm dependent on you, mom. I'm dependent on you, dad. When they feel attached to mom and dad, there's this freedom to be childlike, right? There's wonder and awe and love and beauty, all these things. When they feel safe, they get to be childlike, right? That's the fertile ground that yields all the best that's inside of a child's heart. That's why we find the cross to be so powerful. 
Because what else speaks to the depth of love that our Heavenly Father has for us like the cross? What, what else creates a deeper sense of attachment? Like we are attached to this one who did this for us. Like there is a deep sense of gratitude and attachment in, in that relationship. What else, what else tells us better than the cross, better than the resurrection, it's all gonna be okay. Like it's gonna work out. That's the beauty of the gospel. In one motion, God did something that's so beautiful and so powerful that it can penetrate all of the thick skin causing harm that has ever been done to us. And it creates this space. Like when we think about it, when we just ponder it, when we consider it, it allows us to become his kids again. We get to be his kids again. The disciples of Jesus, they wanted to know what was great And Jesus invites them to experience, to taste this full, vibrant, dynamic, electric life in God. Which, by the way, he insists, Jesus insists, that it is available to any one of us, any time, when we just say yes to him. Amen? Would you pray with me? I don't, want to move, I don't want to move too quick. If not all of you, some of you in the room have had somebody tell you that you couldn't be a kid. Somebody told you that you couldn't be creative. Somebody did something that told you you couldn't trust. Somebody wounded you, and so you're cautious with love. You've lost things, and in that process, you've lost a sense of childlike wonder and awe. And I just want to create a space right now, a time for those wounds to be healed. Jesus doesn't want you to be cynical. He doesn't want you to be hard. He doesn't He doesn't want you to be skeptical. He doesn't want you to live with regret. He wants to free you up to childlike faith and wonder and hope and love and vulnerability and dependency. He wants to release you into that space. But I think he also needs to heal some of those wounds from our past. So Jesus, for any of us in the room that have walked through something that jaded us, For any of us in the room that have ever been wounded through a loss or through the words of another person, for all of us who have had our capacity to be childlike stripped from us, Lord, I ask that you would heal that. Heal those wounds. Lord, may we forgive those who have done those things to us the way that you have forgiven us, and may we be freed to live as your children. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me? <clears throat> My wife told me on Thursday, she said, you know, after this sermon would be a good time to do a plug for kids ministry. I don't, and so... Um, <laughs> I didn't do this on purpose, but I forgot to mention earlier with our Easter services that we, uh, we do need help with kids at all of our services, uh, just extra volunteers, because there's lots of extra kids. And so if you'd be willing to help us, we'd love that. 
Um, shameless plug. Hey, and you'll become more childlike in the process. So there you go. It'll help you with that. We're giving you practical tools right here. If you're willing to, to receive the benediction this morning, maybe hold out your hands as I offer this to you. May you be men and women who become boys and girls. <laughs> may God restore wonder and awe. And may the burden of life be lifted off your shoulders and the lightness of Jesus delivered to you in his name. Amen. Amen. We love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. Have an amazing, amazing day. There's fun stuff out in the comments today. Feel free to hang out and talk to friends. See you later.